what you need is clarity on where the line is drawn. Because at the moment, companies and regulators risk dedicating loads of resources to an authorization for a product that is immediately outdated by the time that it's it's proof of sale. Because you know the technology has moved on so fast that actually the product that's been approved is basically redundant. All the technologies we covered this season have one thing in common. Sooner or later, they need regulatory approval. But what does that mean? We often talk about the US system. The FDA, the Food and Drug Administration and the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture. These two regulators sometimes work together for certain novel products like cultured meat. But you may know that Europe is known for very high safety and quality standards. As one startup founder told me, if you can get past Europe, you can get them all. This is a conversation with Seth Roberts, who is policy manager at the Good Food Institute Europe. So in this episode, you will find out why is it so hard for all protein or biotech companies to get approved in Europe? What does the actual process look like? What are the steps? What do companies need to do? And what is the difference between the systems in Europe, Singapore and the US? I love this topic and we dive deep. So if cultured meat, precision fermentation or biomass fermentation sound like new terms to you, maybe check out the first episodes of the season to get an introduction. Let's jump right in. Red to Green is the most in-depth podcast on food and agriculture sustainability. Covering each topic in over 12 episodes, let's move the food system from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt, and you're listening to Season 6, Biotech and Food. Ah, I'm actually really happy that I'm able to chat with you and we can cover the regulatory side. So maybe we, we start very broad, like comparing the US and Europe. Many companies rather go into the US market, and that has also to do with that it's easier to scale. But part mm. of it is also because in Europe, the regulatory system is a bit more strict. Yeah, so I think the first thing to say is that it's also the ability to scale, but also things like the size of the market. In terms of whether it's more or less strict, the first thing that I would say is that both regulatory systems are like very robust. If we look specifically at something like alternative proteins, they both have a very strong focus on looking at evidence analysis provided by companies, really robustly testing data, lots of emphasis on like toxicology, all of those kind of things. I think potentially what is worth analyzing is the clarity around the path to market in both jurisdictions. So an example here is definitely the US, but also somewhere like Singapore, where they have a wholesome set of guidance that you can provide to companies ahead of them going through the pre-market authorization stage that explains exactly what kind of testing needs to be done, what kind of information regulators need before they can make a decision on whether a product is safe or is not safe. And I think if we look at the EU or indeed the UK, where I'm based at the moment, that's something that's really lacking. And if, if I could speak on behalf of companies, it's the lack of clarity and the lack of guidance mm. that is actually one of the most prohibitive factors in terms of why they might approach one market over another. But I think actually one of the critical things is actually more about the guidance and the process itself rather than there being a specific higher food safety standard in one country as, as opposed to another. Okay, so if a company wants to go through the approval process in the US, the actual regulatory agency would be more specific in saying we need these this kinds of evidence and then the process will look like this. And 
are they more likely to also give some time frames? Because in Europe, they say it at minimum will take 18 months, but the actual length of this process could be going to years and years, right? Yeah, absolutely. So in Europe, if we look at the kind of regulatory frameworks that will apply to alternative proteins, it's most likely to be the novel foods procedure. There are some limited cases where it could be the GM food and feed regulation, but essentially the baseline estimate timeline for approval under the novel foods procedure is 18 months. But for entirely new product categories, it could be closer to 24 months, 36 months, or even longer. There's so many different factors that impact on how long a timeline needs to be. Something that companies can control, for example, is the quality of the information they provide to the regulator. But even if we assume that companies provide the most fantastic information to the regulator to make their safety Mm. decisions on, you've still got situations where the regulator asks for more information. And then also what's interesting about the EU safety assessment process is that it involves a stage called risk management, which actually doesn't have a set timeline around it. So this is where it goes to a committee of the representatives of the EU member states, and they negotiate, discuss a particular product file and make approval decisions based on that. And that process doesn't actually have a timeline. And that kind of lack of lack of clarity, lack of confidence that companies have when they approach a regulatory system it is actually a big hurdle because companies can't say to their investors, you know, this is when mm. we expect to go to market, this is when whatever it might look like. And yeah, as you say, a difference in places like the US is that they can have real substantive conversations with that regulator, begin to look at things like what tests might be required, uh, you know, what information will be sufficient, and also what timelines might be involved. So the US, again, is a good example of a country that does that relatively well. Other examples, places like Singapore, obviously the first place to approve of cold food to meat, regulatory approval of cold food to meat. And if you look at how that process went, it was very much a kind of co-design collaborative relationship between the regulator and the company. But yeah. Hmm. I was wondering whether this more collaborative approach, at least in the US, comes actually from the background of the USDA. So as far as I'm informed, USDA was actually founded to um, also promote food business. Mm. And that on its own is a little bit problematic because the agency that is supposed to control safety is also in charge of promoting food sales and the food industry. That's just... A conflict of interest. But do you think that is the case, that this is why it's a bit more collaborative? It's a fair point that the kind of the firewall that's necessary between a regulator or a regulatory agency and applicant companies is something that's really important from my own kind of perspective on why the USDA has this more collaborative approach. But I would also say that in the US, it's responsibility for a lot of products. So like, for example, cultivated meat is actually split between the FDA and the USDA. If I was to be hopeful, I would say that it's, it's, it's governments and it's regulators waking up to the fact that actually, you know, we're in a climate crisis. These foods uh, that have the potential to provide really excellent sustainability benefits, climate change mitigation benefits, and we need to have a regulatory system that recognizes that the innovation and the focus on sustainability is actually a core part of the role of a future food system. It's more of a kind of sense of co-designing the, the entire process. So regulators can say to companies, you know, this is the kind of information that we normally need. And companies can say, but this is how it might be different for cultivated meat products. But I think it's just a reflection more broadly. This is something that European regulators haven't caught up to, is that food safety is an integral pillar of a kind of regulator's role. But there also has to be a focus on innovation, looking at these new sustainable options and how we can get them to market as well. Yeah. So that would be my kind of two pennies on the subject. A fun little background story, Red to Green kicked off at an event by the ProVeg Incubator in March 2020. It was right before Corona was about to shut everything down. 
But during the ProVeg event on cultivated meat, I got to know so many important people, including my first ever interview guest. The ProVeg Incubator was the first to specialize in alternative protein companies. If you're part of an all-protein startup, check out their 12-week program. It offers mentorship, up to 300k and most useful, lots of important contacts. They are particularly interested in startups developing egg, seafood and chicken alternatives, but also other ingredients and technologies that can help replace animal products on a mass scale. Some examples of companies are Cultivated Biosciences, Bosque Foods and Fly. You can apply any time of the year, so grab your chance to build a company for a better world and check out ProVegIncubator.com. ProVegIncubator.com. Okay. Um, you know, if, when, when I looked into the history of genetic engineering, and especially for our next season, which will summarize key takeaways from a bunch of books on food technology and the food industry, I found... Historically, actually, the regulatory process for genetic engineering was rather lacking. In the US? Actually, I'm very happy that it has become much better. Barely any GMO crops are being grown in Europe, except, let's say, somewhere in Portugal and in Spain. And um, when I looked into why that was the case, part of it was actually this the strong cultural aspect. In the US, people were concerned about health. In Europe, they were concerned about health, but on top of it, also the culture. So when I talked to Ivo, who also works for GFI, he had a very interesting point that he said he hopes that in Europe, the companies that are going to go through the process at first, maybe are going to be some kind of French foie gras cultured meat company or some kind of cultured meat from Italy to also jump over the hurdle of the cultural barrier. And if we look at the actual approval process, that makes so much sense because the individual countries have such an influence. Maybe we could dive into that a bit, like how the novel food process is actually influenced by the country's representatives. Yeah, really happy to. So if we think about sustainable proteins, alternative proteins more broadly, there are basically two kind of regulatory frameworks that will uh, apply to them. So you've got the novel food regulation, and then, as I've mentioned before, you've got the GM food and feed regulation. Those two regulatory frameworks are mutually exclusive. A product will never need to be authorized under both. It's either one or the other. And if we're thinking about sustainable proteins and like innovative plant-based products, they're all going to need to be authorized under the novel foods regime before they can come to market. And as I mentioned, the novel food regime itself has two different steps. So you've got the risk assessment, and then you've got the risk management stage. So the risk assessment stage is when companies submit data to EFSA that justifies the safety of their product. Just Sorry. to intersect the European yes. Food Safety Authority. So yeah, the European Food Safety Authority will then yeah have a really robust interrogation of the data that companies have provided. This applies to the kind of compositional makeup of the product, but also stuff like toxicology, allergenicity, production processes, all of these things that are considered. And then when EFSA has kind of concluded this process, they will then make a recommendation back to the European Commission that says, we think this product is safe or not safe, and we think it should be authorized for usage at this kind of intake level. That's the kind of scientific part of the process is, is then done. And then we move into what's called risk management, which is where the European Commission specifically lays out a recommendation. So should be approved, should not be approved. And then it also says stuff like maximum usage intake, what should be on the front of pack label for a product, uh, 
if it is to be approved. That implementing act then gets transferred to a committee in the European Commission, which is called the Plants, Animals, Food and Feed Committee, or the PATH Committee. That committee is made up of representatives of all EU27 governments, and it's that committee which actually takes the final decision on approval of a product under the Northern Foods Regime. So the PATH Committee takes decisions based on qualified majority voting. So you need 55% of member states who represent 65% of the EU population to be in favour of a decision in order for that implementing act to be approved. And if it is approved, then it's added to the union list of novel foods. What that means is that the final decision on the authorization of a novel product is actually quite political in nature um, because it involves this kind of negotiation between government, you know, representatives at that PATH committee exchange views on, on a given product. And, you know, there are wider considerations like, you know, social considerations, economic considerations that begin to feed into a decision on a, on a product kind of safety decision. And I think that, to me, is slightly problematic because it, it blurs the lines between what we have in a kind of product safety authorization system. And then it delves into this kind of like political arena where there's risks that that can kind of be lost. Yeah. Yeah. So to summarize, the European Food Safety Authority does the the first hurdle of the scientific testing, looking at the studies or the tests that are handed in by the companies themselves. Then the commission is more of a bureaucratic step and usually doesn't intervene with the process. Uh, and the last important part is really the, um, what did you call it again? What was this? It's the Plants, Animals, Food and Feed Committee. Exactly. So the PATH Committee that's when it becomes more of a debate. And looking at how Europe is set up, back when UK was part of Europe, it had also a strong influence. But I guess now it's especially the French and the Italian um, who are probably like the most passionate voices in this kind of committee in terms of preserving European food culture. And I, and I must say, if we are looking at it just from the biotech lens, we're like, oh, this is so annoying. Uh, but as a European citizen, I must say I'm super, super happy with the kind of authenticity of the local cuisines that we still have compared to mm. if it would be a very open, completely liberal market in that way. Absolutely. No, I think that's exactly right. And it's such a strong element of the European kind of citizen identity. I think the only thing I would say is that there's no reason why that's not compatible also with new products like sustainable proteins. And I think that actually should be considered as a really exciting addition to what a food yeah. culture of the country is. So if we stay with this novel food process and we look at the different types of companies, maybe the current state I think there's no cultured meat company that has applied for this process in Europe. What about precision fermentation? What about biomass fermentation? Yeah, so you're right. There have been no safety dossiers or authorization requests submitted by cultivated meat companies in either the EU or the UK. In terms of precision fermentation, I mean, there have been previous examples of precision fermentation products. You've obviously got insulin and rennet, which have been consumed in the EU for, for ages, as you know. Precision fermentation, I think we're beginning to see the first dossier submitted. Some submissions are going to come down the track, potentially strengthened by the fact that in other jurisdictions, for example, in the US, there are actually quite a few of them that have made it through the regulatory approvals process. And so companies then look for other markets, whether that be the EU or wherever. Uh, and similarly, we've already got some 
products on the market produced by biomass fermentation, stuff like corn using the fermenters fungi. I think what we'll see is an increasing number and volume of these applications as the technology kind of improves. What we're looking at, hopefully for 2023, is actually a kind of bumpy year of these products coming down the track, which is super exciting. And if we look at precision fermentation specifically, the yeast need to be genetically engineered, right? So if you would just keep the yeast in the final product, it would actually fall into um, the GMO route of the regulatory system. So how do precision fermentation companies manage to get into the Novel Foods Act? Because they use the downstream processing. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question. Bear with me because it, it can be slightly technical. But so basically <laughs> the way the GMF or the GM food and feed regulation works is that any food that contains or any end product that contains or consists of GMOs, they automatically fall under the GM food and feed regulation. Foods produced from GMOs, so where a food is derived in whole or in part from GMOs, but do not contain that genetically modified DNA in their own product, can still fall under the GM food and feed regulation because of the way that the European regulatory system is set up to focus not just on the end product, but also on the production process, which is slightly different from like a US system, for example, where the focus is just on the end product. But those products that are produced with GMOs, so where GMOs, for example, are used as a processing aid, they don't necessarily fall under the GMF regulation. So th there's a slight kind of lack of clarity around that. So it focuses much more on the kind of on how the GMO is used. And then it focuses, obviously, as I said, on the, the safety of the, both the product and also the production process itself. And then if you have a product that's approved under the GM food and feed regulation, it's required to be labelled as such. So it needs to say containing GMOs or, or whatever that label might be. But like the only situation where that labelling isn't required is where an end product has less than 0.9% GMO in its makeup. But not only that, also the GMO presence has to be technically unavoidable. The other thing that I would say is that a lot of the companies operating in this space or looking to operate in this space in the EU, so if we think about maybe Formo in Germany, Perfect Day, the companies that are already like considering the kind of regulatory process, they've already been clear that they won't be coming to market using GMOs in their production process uh, or in their final product. That's where the kind of the focus on the novel foods process then comes in because these products will hopefully be authorized under that regime. Okay, because the way that I understood it so far is for precision fermentation per default, you need genetic engineering. There is a company that I recently found that does try to have yeast produce dairy proteins without genetic engineering because they found a special kind of yeast. But in the most cases, genetic engineering is necessary because otherwise these yeasts would not produce them. And then it comes down to, are they able to separate enough of the yeast from the actual milk protein? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a fair point. I think potentially there's an argument here that greater clarity is needed by EFSA and the commission, what the kind of end product needs to look like, what it needs to include, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. But until we have a proof point from regulators, that's just a kind of assumption rather than something that's been been tested, as it were. Yeah, interesting. Um, so apparently companies, once they apply for that process, it's not possible to majorly change the actual production at all. Or can you change it or are you like fixed in there? Yeah, it's such an interesting point. So as it stands, there is a lack of guidance from EFSA on the extent to which product can be amended and improved whilst they have a dossier under review. So that refers to the kind of makeup of the product, but also the production process. It's a major issue because the dynamic nature of this kind of alternative protein sector means that products submitted for approval are going to be constantly subject to ongoing refinement, both in mm -hmm. compositional makeup, but also the production processes. 
But what we really need is regulators to provide clarity on what changes to ingredients and production methods are allowed as part of an existing dossier application and those that require a dossier to be resubmitted for approval. What you need is clarity on where the line is drawn because at the moment companies and regulators risk dedicating loads of resources to an authorization for a product that is immediately outdated by the time that it's it's approved for sale because the, the technology has moved on so fast that actually the product that's been approved is basically redundant. So at the end of last year, Singapore approved uh, a product by Goodmeat, which was a serum-free version of their cultivated chicken. The original cultivated chicken product kind of uh, containing serum was approved in 2020. But what the SFA said was that they approved a kind of amendment to that original chicken where they just looked at the replacement serum and any issues that might raise from a food safety perspective without Goodmeat having to go back and restart the whole regulatory authorization process from scratch. That's so fascinating. So just to loop listeners back in, so serum in this case, does that mean growth meter? Yes. So growth meter, does, and that will be animal-derived serum. So the original cultivated meat product was used animal-derived serum. This was serum-free media. Oh, interesting. So Good Meat is one of the most well-known companies in the cultured meat space and the first one to go through the approval process. I think it was December 2021. So would you say that the Singaporean regulatory system is the closest to the kind of ideal system that you envision? Yeah, what I would say is that probably what regulatory system is most appropriate for a jurisdiction probably also depends a bit on the context that it's operating within. There's also historical context, as you mentioned. A lot of actually how the EU food system is set up was actually in response to stuff like the BSC outbreak, the dioxin scare that happened in Belgium in the 90s, early 2000s. That's why the European kind of food safety regulations are so stringent uh, and so process heavy. I don't necessarily think that there's one model that fits all, but I think there are certain principles that probably should be applied across the board. Singapore is a great example for a number of reasons. One is that if I have a sustainable protein company, or even if I have an idea for a sustainable protein product, I can go to the regulator. And from that point on, you have a single point of contact in the regulatory agency who knows about your idea or your product and doesn't guide you through the process, but helps you navigate it. I think the second thing to say, the Singaporean Food Agency has probably the, the most impressive guidance resources in the world in terms of like, particularly if we think about alternative proteins, they're broken down by what you need to produce in terms of like safety dossiers for cultivated meat versus precision fermentation versus biomass fermentation. That kind of level of specificity is really impressive and it's constantly kept up to date. And then the other thing I would say is about timelines. The SFA has so far shown itself to be quite quick to approve products. It's not a question, I guess, of speed, but efficiency. And again, of being clear with companies uh, what the timelines involved might be. And I think, and maybe this is going slightly off topic here, but that comes a little bit down again to how we resource our regulators. That actually resourcing a regulator appropriately allows all of these knock-on effects to then come into place where you have excellent guidance, excellent collaboration opportunities, quicker approvals, all of those kind of things. Interesting. So... So so many points. <laughs> okay, how do I structure this? <laughs> we just talked about good meat and the serum-free approval process. There is a company that is actually working on producing growth medium with engineered flies. So these genetically engineered flies, they produce a higher amount of growth hormones when they are subjected to heat stress, and then the hormones are taken out. If a company in Europe, cultured meat company, would use that kind of growth medium, would it then 
be the same kind of, oh, we need to look how much it is in the end product? Or would it just be like in general, like, no, no, don't do that? <sighs> yeah, no, it's a great question. I think basically it comes down to probably the former. So whether a cold vitamin product needs to be authorized under the novel foods or the GM food and feed regulation is basically determined by the product makeup. If it contains or is produced from GMOs, it's probably going to have to go through the GM food and feed regulation. The thing I would say, and I know this is slightly on a tangent, but actually fundamentally for lots of cultivated meat, there's no reason why they need to involve GMOs. Cultivated meat just involves supporting cells to grow, much like plants in a greenhouse is the example that we always use, and that doesn't need any genetic modification. And actually lots of the European companies are already being clear that they won't use genetic modification or GMOs in their final product. A little side note here. I recently heard a comment of a cultivated meat company based in Germany where the CEO said that it's going to be pretty hard for them to scale the technology without using genetic engineering. Now, I really want to highlight that genetic engineering is simply a technique. It's a technology. Whether it has positive outcomes or negative outcomes is really based on what is actually done and how it's done. But anyway, consider subscribing because in the next season we will discuss this topic in more detail. So if you read about cultivated meat companies that use immortalized cell lines, so cell lines that just keep replicating and replicating, that can be achieved by either isolating and culturing two more cells and then replicating them, or by introducing an immortalizing gene. That would be an actual use case of genetic engineering in cultivated meat. But you know, there are more and more companies working in this space. And just like Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger do not represent the hundreds and hundreds of various plant-based startups, there will be quite a big difference between the approaches of how to go about creating real meat from cells. So if we look at the entire biotech space, right, we talked a lot about cultured meat. And it's like also a little bit of my uh, obsession, you know, I always get drawn back into cultured meat. But if we um, look at biomass fermentation, for example, it seems that the approval process for would be the easiest. I don't even think it's biotechnology. I mean, if you just grow fungi over a set of beans and it, it's tempeh, is that biotech? But let's say if it's liquid biomass fermentation and it has a bioreactor attached to it, I would say biomass has the easiest way through the approval process. Then it's precision fermentation and then it's cultured meat. What would you say? Uh, I would say that it's super interesting. So maybe taking a step back, biomass obviously is super exciting because of what it can do in terms of leveraging fast growth of high protein count of microorganisms. The other thing to add to that is that there are a range of microorganisms that are actually being explored for applications in biomass fermentation. And that means it's, it's hard, I think, to make a generalized assumption about how hard or easy the approvals process will be for some of these products in the EU. Some microbes used in biomass fermentation, again, I would use the example of like filamentous fungi used in corn, they're already approved. So they wouldn't require additional approvals if companies were to use those, those kind of uh, microbes or ingredients that have already been approved. For new microbes, Again, I would probably say that we'd expect most to come to market without GMOs, so they'd go through the normal food process. So I think it's a difficult question to answer. What I would certainly say is that you know biomass fermentation products already exist on the market at the moment. 
I see no re- real reason for them to be politically polarizing. So yes, I would hope that they would have a very smooth pass to market, but I would also hope that for cultivated meat and precision fermentation as well, where possible. Yeah, so of course, fungi are just one example of biomass fermentation. And I would say gas fermentation that we also covered in this season would go into that bucket. And molecular farming, that would be my framework. Nearer to precision fermentation with probably more challenges because you would definitely not be able to grow them inside of Europe. One thing that is very interesting to think about is, are these toxicological studies, and that can also be in the US, let's say, um, are they made with rats? Are they actually made with humans? Because Larissa Zimbaroff, uh, one of our guests in this season, she had a valid point that she wants studies where for a year, somebody drinks perfect day precision fermentation milk instead of the regular milk. And then it it's observed whether the actual humans have any side effects. What is the kind of baseline that is expected from companies to hand in in terms of data? Yeah. So again, a really interesting question. In the EU, there, there isn't, under the novel foods uh, regulation or under the GM food and feed regulation, there isn't actually a list of the toxicological studies that are actually required. So there's guidance that says tox studies should be carried out with novel food as intended to be marketed. They should involve a range of different kind of considerations. But where it stops short is actually specifying what tests are required. Instead, applicants, so companies, are encouraged to choose the studies which they think are necessary and then conduct these in accordance with uh, EFSA guidelines and international guidelines. It's a major challenge for alternative proteins, sustainable proteins companies, that there seems to be a kind of de facto requirement for animal testing as part of the risk assessment process. So lots of the sustainable protein companies that we talk to, they're opposed to animal studies because of who they are, the ethos of their companies, their product, the consumers they're trying to reach. And although the European Commission and EFSA recommends where possible to avoid or reduce animal testing. They also don't provide any guidance on kind of how you might do that or what the animal-free methods are that would guarantee product safety. And the studies are also likely not public, right? So all this toxicological data, you cannot look into the kind of studies that Monsanto voluntarily handed in on their genetically engineered glyphosate-resistant crops you cannot just, as a layperson or even as an academic, look into that. It does require from consumers to just be like, oh, I just generally trust the EFSA. I just generally mm-hmm. trust the USDA. I cannot in any way actually verify what was tested, how it was tested, how it was approved. Um, and of course, that makes it understandable if people are also a bit wary of it. Yeah. Yeah. What I would say is that things have got better in the EU since the implementation of the transparency regulation a couple of years ago. That's improved the level of information that is made public. But it remains the case, as you say, that when companies submit a safety dossier to EFSA or to the European Commission, they can ask for certain aspects of it to be treated as confidential and therefore not made public. However, I would say then that it actually is down to the European Commission or EFSA. to grant that request. So if a company says, I'd like to uh, have this bit of my safety dossier or these tests that I did be confidential and not shared publicly, the commission has a right to say, no, we don't uh, don't think that that's necessary. We think it's in the public interest to make them public. And at that point, the company can either decide to kind of withdraw their request entirely or to accept uh, the commission's recommendation. What's interesting is that we haven't had many years of the kind of operation of the novel food framework under the transparency regulation. So I'll be interested to see how this kind of process develops as the years progress. Now that it's in place, 
will we see a greater degree of pushback from the commission on what can be confidential, what can be treated as confidential, what cannot be. The other thing is that actually the European Union's regulatory system is probably one of the more transparent if we look at it in comparison to other regulatory platforms like Singapore. Uh, again, there's less of a focus here on IP protection, company protection than there is on, in some other jurisdictions. Yeah, lovely. Okay, uh, it's okay. No, I'm not going to ask more questions. No more questions. <laughs> I could keep talking about this for like ages. I, yeah. Like it's just ridiculous to me how interested I've become in, in regulation. Mm. What is one controversial opinion that you have about this or the biotech industry in general? The first one that I'd say is that no tinkering with a regulatory system is ever going to be as important as funding a regulator properly. This is the single most important thing that governments can do in order to make sure that regulatory frameworks work effectively. So if you don't resource the regulator effectively, basically they lack the capacity to process approvals at the speed and volume that required. And what this all ends up in is that actually you end up offshoring business. So if we look at, again, I'll take the UK as an example, Ivy Farms is a cultivated meat company in the UK. They've recently announced that they'll be building production facilities actually overseas. So outside of the UK, in a country with a more clear and efficient path to market. And that's a direct result of the regulator not being funded appropriately. So I think that is the single most important thing that could be done in order to improve the kind of assessment process for sustainable proteins and biotech more broadly. If I could then maybe pick a different example, which is slightly more left field, but the alternative protein sector as a whole won't overcome some of the challenges it faces unless you have public sector funding like massively increased. Private capital is not ever going to be enough on its own to overcome the challenges that the sector faces. So if you look at what governments did in relation to solar power, uh, you know, huge investments, investing billions in R&D, early stage research, that kind of stuff, it saw the price of solar panels fall dramatically between 2010 and 2020. We need to do the same kind of thing for sustainable proteins if they're going to be able to deliver on the potential that they have to tackle climate change and stuff like that. An example, oh, kind of a bit of evidence around this, the Foreign Office, the UK Foreign Office report, which was published a couple of years ago, suggested that it was going to take $10 billion of investment from governments globally every year to realize the full benefits of sustainable proteins. Unless we have that kind of investment, we're just not going to see all of these challenges solved. The other thing I'd say, public investment means that solutions to problems on safeguarded or put behind paywalls, they're not uh, you know, held by companies and they're all open access, which is all really fantastic. But they also focus on different questions. So you can look at long-term, sector-wide R&D questions rather than things that needed to like meet short-term profit-making margins and that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. We also had this already come up in the first ever season on cellular agriculture in our final where I talked to Isha Datar about it. That, of course, the lack of public research is really making it harder to grow the entire space, for sure. If you would have 50 million and you could invest them in any kind of project, innovation, technology, where would you invest those? Based on the answer I've just given, I would probably have to say, put it in front of the regulator. I guess a different tack could be some kind of dedicated alternative proteins research center that focuses on universal bottlenecks for the entire alternative protein sector. So, you know, something that looks at pre-competitive technical challenges that lots of different companies are working on in their own individual silos. If you're looking at cultivating to make something like species-relevant cell lines, an open-access plant protein database, new microbial strains for precision fermentation, any of these things that kind of support a whole sector. And why I think that's super relevant is that, as I said, lots of companies are working on this individually. But if you have some kind of open-access uh, research center that benefits everyone, you support the whole sector. It democratizes research. It allows everyone to benefit. 
and it maximizes then the opportunities for sustainable proteins to, to hit these objectives around sustainability, environmental protection that they're so kind of critical for. So some kind of dedicated research center, I think, would be a really positive step. Well, that was a nerdy escapade. Are you part of any Slack or Discord channels or any WhatsApp groups that could be possibly interested in this? It would mean the world if you take half a minute and just share the episode with your favorite takeaway in whatever group could be nerdy enough to be interested in this. <laughs> Thanks to the entire Red to Green team. You can find them on our webpage, redtogreen.solutions. We're currently looking for volunteers to help with the transcriptions of episodes or making them available as videos so more people have access to the content. You can always find volunteer opportunities and ways to get involved on our website redtogreen.solutions. Until next time, let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.